0: Hey, thank you so much for having me. We are honored to be here. New York has been a lot of fun for my family. Um, We're celebrating my daughter's eighth birthday, so she came with us, and we've just had a great time. So, hey, I'm a Bible teacher, so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab that and meet me over in Acts chapter 3. So we're going to be in verses 11 through 26. As you're making your way over there, I'll go ahead and I'll start reading it for you. So that you can get a sense of where we are going. So verse 11, it says this, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know and by faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all." And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn, that your sins may be blotted out. The time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ. Appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. Also proclaimed in these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham and his offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God has raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Did you know that the author or the operator of the Titanic actually knew that the iceberg was just up ahead and he ignored the call? Matter of fact, here's what he said, I quote to you, shut up, shut up, you are jamming my line, I am trying to work. Oh, do you not think that he would want a mulligan on that one to start over again? Here's the thing. The voices you allow into your life, the voices you receive, they actually determine a lot about who you are. How many great people in the history of the world have a downfall because they were just unwilling to listen to the voices around them? Like I can tell you, I can tell you that there's so many people, if they could go back and just do it one more time, they would do it differently because they would have the humility The humility to listen. Here's a profound truth that illustrates this. That's true today. The Bible speaks to it, but it's so true today. The voices that you allow to speak into your life shape who you are. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs says it this way. Better is an open rebuke than a hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Perfuse the kisses of an enemy. Maybe you're here today. And maybe you just need to reevaluate in your life who's speaking truth into your life. What are you listening to? What are you receiving? Who are the people that actually speak to you more than anybody? Statistically speaking, do you know who speaks into your life more than anybody? You. What do you tell yourself? How many people do you know that if, if, you, if you speak for just a moment, they're, they're killing themselves by the identity that they speak over themselves, the, the thing that they receive about themselves. They think that they're ugly or they're not good looking or, or they're not good enough. They, they fail to actually do anything in life because they hold themselves back. Maybe today you need to reevaluate that. See, what they tell you is the people that speak the most in your life are actually people who shape who you are. Who are those people? Did you know that sociologists will tell you that if your five closest friends lose weight, statistically speaking, you will too, or if, they, if the inverse is true, the people you surround yourself with are the people you become. What is the message that you're hearing Today in Acts chapter 3, I want to walk through this verse by verse, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you that if you would properly receive praise, it will actually set you up for a healthy life, and then I want to give you eight attributes in this text about Jesus that if you'll ground yourself in the gospel, will change who you are. All right, so here it is. You ready? Look at verse 11 again. While he clung to Peter and John, now you got to get this. We're in the middle of a story that he that he is a paralyzed man who sat outside of the temple day in and day out. Matter of fact, the Bible will tell you in chapter three, three times a day he begged for money over and over and over again. In chapter four, it gives you this odd little detail right at the end that tells you that that man was over forty years old and he was and he was lame from birth. What does that tell you? For me, whenever I look at the Bible, I try to grab these obscure passages because nothing in the Bible is on accident. Why would the book of Acts, why would Luke tell you that one little detail? This guy was lame from birth, sat outside the temple three times a day, and he was over 40 years old. Check this out. This event happened just a couple weeks after the Passover, okay? Imagine who was there during the Passover walking into that same temple, Jesus. Which, what, what does that tell you? I know this is a side fact, but here's what it tells you, Jesus would've walked right past that guy and never healed him. Here's what I tell my family, here's what I told our church, that tells you and that tells me that God's timing is actually perfect because if God would've healed him then, a couple weeks earlier then the 5,000 people that came to faith because of this healing wouldn't have come to faith. So if you're sitting there and you're wondering, where are you God, like we often are, I think God's just saying just hold on because in my time, I'm going to do what I, what I can only do. So this guy, this guy was healed from Peter because he's looking for money. And Peter looks at him and he says, silver or gold have I none? But what I have I give you because it's better than money can buy. I give you Jesus. This dude gets up. He leaps with joy, which is a direct prophecy from the book of Isaiah, runs into the temple where the Sadducees are standing there, and he's clinging to Peter and John. And all the people were utterly astounded, which wouldn't you be? Right, and together they ran to the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us? As it is by our power and piety that this man walks. So check this out. Peter, Peter, he walks up to this guy, heals him, and this guy is clinging to Peter, clinging to him, and people are jaw-dropped, astounded at what had just happened, Y'all, that's a pretty reasonable response. I, I remember when we first started our church almost six years ago, there was this, this guy named Dave who started coming to our church. Dave was blind. And when I say blind, like blind, blind, couldn't see anything blind, right? Um, he, he had this dog named Nathan, and Nathan um, was the worst seeing eye dog on the planet, Okay. Like, I'm not kidding. I, I picked him up from Firehouse Subs one time, and Nathan is up on the table eating somebody's sub, and Dave is sitting there, and this old couple is like, they don't know what to do, terrified. And I'm like, Dave, you gotta take care of your dog. And he says as loud as you can. Don't worry about it, bro, I'm blind. What are they gonna say? I'm like, we gotta get out of here as quickly as we can. Now imagine a Dave, like Dave can't see anything, walks into our church and he starts complimenting my wife on her dress and he's breakdancing in the middle of the floor. You would be astounded, like utterly astounded, right? That's the picture here, okay? It's not like these guys didn't know that this guy was standing outside of the temple day in and day out. They tell you three times a day. pious Jewish people, think about the book of Daniel, went to the temple three times a day to pray. That's what you did. Matter of fact, if you're at the third time, you're the varsity level Jews at that time, right? They're the guys who showed up. That's what was happening, okay? They were utterly astounded. But what were they astounded at? This is important. They were astounded at what Peter and John did. And listen to what Peter said. Peter says, I didn't do it. Why are you looking at me? So here's the first lesson I want you to understand if you want to have a healthy relationship is this. It's not about you, You see, when you receive praise, whenever you live this life, you're just an extra in the story. And if you would place yourself properly in this story called life, what you would get is you would actually be able to live this life in a much healthier way. Peter's like, why are you looking at me as if I did anything? You're looking at the wrong person. You should be looking through me to Jesus. And if you would actually see him, what you would see is you would stop clinging to me. See, Peter's looking at this guy as he's clinging to him, and he's looking at him saying, you're clinging to the wrong thing. And maybe the reason why you're not satisfied in life is because you're clinging to the wrong thing, right? Maybe you're clinging to an identity of success, or you're clinging to your family, or you're clinging to whatever that thing is, and Peter's looking at this guy, and he's saying, hey, look, dude, that power to actually change who you are, it's not me. And if you don't stop clinging to me, what you're gonna find is it's always going to overpromise and underdeliver because I can't live up to the thing that you actually need. I'm supposed to be a reflection of God. See, here's, here's a question I asked myself just the other day as I was reading this. Have I done anything significant enough in my life that where people would actually confuse me with God? I'm serious. Like, have I ever walked with Jesus so faithfully that somebody would cling to me and misunderstand the fact that it's not about me? You know what I'm talking about? Here's the, one day I want to look back on my life. And I want to look at my kids and my grandkids and I want to say one day, guys, it was never about me. Like, it's about him. Don't look to me. Look through me and look to him. Y'all, there's nothing more significant than being known by God and than making him known. There's nothing more impactful and fulfilling than having a life that when people look at you, you can say, don't look at me. Like, I know you're confused because I'm walking with Jesus, but don't look at me, look at him. Here's a question you should ask yourself. Does your life reflect God's glory or does it absorb it for yourself? Do you reflect God's glory or do you absorb it? That's one of the most profound questions you can ask yourself: Are you a glory thief? If you are, your life will always overpromise and underdeliver. See, when people ask you about how you got so successful at whatever you did, uh, how you've achieved whatever you've done, do you absorb it for yourself, or do you realize that you're just you're a conduit in a much bigger story? Like, do you realize that you are a product of so much more than you? Have you ever traced that back in your own life? Maybe you have a good education or a good job, but do you realize that, hey, where you were born, in the, in the country you're born in, at the time that you're born into to the family that you're born in, the education that you receive, you are a product of God's grace. Matter of fact, for some of you, you can actually look at your physical health as a product of God's grace. You didn't choose not to be born with Down syndrome. Not, not, you hear what I'm saying? Like everything that we have, no matter what we have and what we possess, is a gift. It's a gift. Your cognitive abilities are a gift from God. Your physical abilities are a gift from God. The ability to earn money is a gift from God. There is no such thing as a self-made man. All of us are a product of our family origin, where we are born, when we are born, in the environment that we live in. See, the difference between someone who is content with what God has given them and those who are always striving for more are those who realize that everything that they have is a gift from God and they give credit where credit is due. I'm telling you, there's an exercise here in humility just to look at your life and say, God, thank you. Thank you. Peter knew. He knew that everything was a gift from God. And that's why he was actually able to enjoy what he had. Peter makes it all about Jesus. The thing that healed this guy wasn't Peter. The thing that healed this guy was the gospel. It was, you you gotta understand this, just a couple weeks earlier, Peter is denying Jesus outside of of the temple, sitting with a middle school girl, and he's scared to death. This same people who literally was a coward weeks prior is now a hero of the faith because he understands the gospel. Here's a big idea. Peter's about to tell you where this power came from to heal And he wants to know, do you have ears to hear the truth? Because if you do, that changes everything. Eight attributes. Eight attributes about Jesus that change everything. Here they are. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to walk through them. Verse 13, read it with me again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses in his name, by faith in his name. He has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. All right, verse 13. Jesus, number one, is God's servant. What's fascinating about that word servant, if you know anything about the, the Bible, it, it's normally this word translated slave or doulos, which, which means servant, but that's actually not the word that he uses here. He uses the word pis, which is which is different. It, it can be translated son, but it also translates suffering son. How did did God glorify Jesus? Through his suffering. Matter of fact, theologians would say this is his humiliation and exaltation. Think about Philippians chapter two. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friend. Y'all, this is so important. Jesus is the servant of God because he laid down his life. See, if you're gonna get the gospel, you have to start with this. The way that God glorified himself was through the suffering of his son. That the, the big question you should ask is why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Well, Jesus had to suffer to save the world, John 3:16, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, not literally, literally everything that, that he gave. He gave, he gave his only son. In the economy of God's grace. He won the entire world by dying for the world, not by becoming this righteous living king, but he did it by suffering to save everyone. You see, Jesus is the servant of God that accomplished the mission of God. He stood in the gap between our sins, and the way you think about this is sin is, is the I in the middle, it's all about me. If you actually go back to Genesis chapter three, the very first sin of the world was displacing God. It had nothing to do with a piece of fruit. It had everything to do with man saying, hey, Jesus, God, I don't need you. I can be my own God. Matter of fact, that's the essence of every single sin. It's an identity issue. We look at God and we say, bro, I got this. I can handle it on my own. So what we did is we created this chasm between us because our condition called sin has separated us from God. We have literally dethroned God from the throne of our own lives, and we said, I can handle this on my own. But what does God do? He lives your perfect life in your place and dies your death. If you didn't know this, these 66 books written by 40 different authors covering the span of thousands of years is telling one complete story. In the beginning, God created you. He created you, made in his image to be in perfect relationship or union with him for all of eternity. Genesis 3 comes along and we looked at God and we said, that's great, God, but I got this. We don't need you anymore. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, it is a story of redemption about how a God himself would come to try to rescue you over and over and over again. You see the same thing play out through the Exodus. You get to the end of that and then the people of God look at God and say, we don't need you. God says, I I want to be your king. They say, we don't need you. Give us prophets, priests, and kings instead. And to the point in which you get to the very last pages of the Old Testament, God stops speaking for 400 years. We call this the intertestamental period. But whenever he does come back in Matthew, what does he say? He says, I'm not going to speak anymore. I'm not going to pursue you anymore. I'm going to put on flesh, John 1 says. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to become your suffering servant so that I can live your perfect life and die your death in your place so that I will no longer have to pursue you, but I'll do it for you. And in the end, book of Revelation, what does he say? I love it. Revelation 21, he says, I will come down. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer, the great writer, the Lord of the Rings, he says it best. He says, one day God's gonna make all the sad things become untrue. He became your suffering servant. By the way, that's what makes the difference for the world, if I can just tell you that servant leadership. It's stewardship. The reason why the early church was so attractive was not because they won by power or might. It's because they were suffering servants. When you love people sacrificially, you make the greatest difference in the world, and then God fills you up with more of him. See, Jesus was the suffering servant of God, and he died in your place so that you Could have life. Goes on to the next one, number two. How could he do it? Because he was, number two, he was the holy and righteous one. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That word holy means set apart. Righteous means that he was right before God. Have you ever noticed this? You should here in Brooklyn because you have this melting pot of all these different religions. Nobody in the world really cares about God. He's not that offensive, right? You can talk about God. You can have a coexist sticker. You can have all these things, and nobody really matters. No, no, nobody cares. Mention the name of Jesus and see what happens. Why? Because Jesus is exclusive. Like, like we, we shouldn't apologize for this. Jesus says there are not a million ways to God. There's one, and it's him. By the way, if I can just tell you as, as a Christian. The most offensive thing you can do is say that there's any other way to heaven other than Jesus. Why? Because then if there's any other way to heaven other than Jesus, then Jesus' death was totally unnecessary. Matter of fact, it makes God bad. Because if you could get to heaven any other way, why would anybody want to go through Jesus? That's difficult. There's an exclusivity, but I'll just tell you this, stealing from Tim Keller. He is the most inclusive exclusivity there's ever existed. He says anybody can come. He made a way for all people. See, Jesus being fully God and fully man was able to be completely holy in every single way, perfect in all of his ways, never sinned, never messed up. He did absolutely everything right, and this is super important because if he broke any rule, he broke them all. Imagine this. So my wife is with me. We've been married for 12 years, and imagine, you know, we went out on this nice little date in Manhattan and had a a great dinner, and I looked at her, and I said, sweetheart, I just want to let you know how much I love you. Like we've been together 16 years, and I have been 99 percent faithful to you. Only happened a couple times. And she'd be like, "That's amazing. You are so committed to me. No. I don't even want to tell you what you'd do to me, but I wouldn't be standing here right now. See, because the reality is, is to be faithful, or to be unfaithful one time is to be completely unfaithful. And to break any laws, to break all the laws, right? I mean, is there any lady in this room that wants a husband that's faithful to her 95% of the time? No, because he's completely unfaithful. That's the gospel. If Jesus was not completely faithful, he's completely unfaithful, which is why Jesus had to be 100% completely faithful. He's holy, set apart, righteous, perfect in all of his ways. That's why he could stand in your place. You get this, let me, let me kinda of make the Bible come together. In the beginning, you had a man named Adam. Adam was your representative head. Meaning, whatever Adam did, represented all of humanity in that moment. So when he failed, you fail. Why is that important? Because it seems unfair, but why is that important? Well, if you didn't have a representative head in Adam, you could not have a representative head in Jesus. So because Adam was able to represent all of humanity, so could Jesus. And Jesus was actually able to step out there and say, I'm going to represent all of you in a way that Adam never could. I'm going to be holy and righteous and do what he couldn't. therefore, he was able to substitute himself, not just for Adam, but for all of humanity. So his perfect righteous record is actually now yours, if you believe in him. So if you believe in him, God, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin or your identity. What does he see? He sees Christ's perfect righteousness in your place. So let me just tell you, next time somebody tells you there's another way to heaven, even the good person approach, that is a complete affront to Jesus. The only way is through the holy and righteous one. The reality is Jesus is holy because you are not. And because you are not, he had to be. Y'all, can I just tell you there's nothing more humbling than that? You want to talk about humility? Sit in the fact that Jesus had to come and die for you. And then sit in the fact that that he wanted to come and die for you. Both of those things change everything about you. By the way, I'm going to give you all the little side notes. Humility in the Bible is never... It's never a noun, it's always a verb. It's not who you are, it's what you do, you humble yourself. You receive it and as you receive it, it's an action of what you do with it. You're not a humble person, you practice humility. You get the difference there? So you get the gospel, you receive humility and you let that be who you are. Here's number three, he is the author of life. The author of life, verse 15, you killed the author of life, he says, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. You're starting to see it. You see why he's the author of life? He's the author of life because of what he did. And now watch as God raised him from the dead. Theologians again call this his glorification, meaning that Jesus, he came to earth in a human body. He indwelled here. I love this. The, the creator becomes subject to his creation. Imagine the humility of that. The very ones he created, he subjected himself under. And then he lived your perfect life, died your death, and then he rose from the dead. That's why Easter is the most important day of the year. Christmas is amazing. Easter is even more amazing because when he rose from the dead, God glorified him and positioned him in such a way that for all of eternity now, his perfect righteousness is yours. He defeated death. So whenever God told Adam, if you do this, you will surely die. In that moment, he did die. He died both spiritually and he died physically later on. But 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation right now. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Why? Because God glorified Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you positionally have risen from the dead too, and you will rise from the dead in a physical body. He's the author of life because of what he did. Again, Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've heard it said this way, every knee is going to bow, so you might as well bow now instead of later. Because when you bow now, you get to bow to him as your king. When you bow later, he's not going to be your king. See, when you sinned, Ephesians 1 says you are dead in your sins. But you become alive in Christ, Galatians 3 says, when you give him your life. Listen, because the resurrection is true, everything is possible. In Christ, we can find life. Like I know, I know, that there's so many deep questions in life right now. Y'all, we have them. Why is there so much suffering in the world? I mean, let's just be real, why is there so much suffering in my world? Right, whenever, uh, yeah, I don't have time to get into this, my wife went into labor at 22 weeks with our fourth child. Uh, we were told that one of them might not survive, whether it be her or him. And I, we went for months asking that question. Whenever our daughter was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that started making her hair fall out, we we asked those "why" questions. And listen, they're they're important questions, but they're not the most important question. The most important question is this: Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Because if he did, what that tells me is that he has a plan that I might not understand. Matter of fact, the cross and the resurrection shows you that even in suffering, God can take the things of this world that make absolutely no sense and show you that he has purposes for them. We call those theodicies. I remember my oldest daughter had to have surgery uh, on her mouth when she was little, and we were at Duke Hospital, and she's, you know, she's three years old at the time. She's asking, like, "What what's happening? And imagine, I'm sitting her down, and I'm like, all right, baby, listen. Some, some stranger's gonna come, he's gonna cut you. It's going to hurt really, really bad. But don't worry, you're going to be okay. Imagine trying to explain that to a three-year-old. She's looking at me like, what the, what are you talking about? No, 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 she didn't have the mind to comprehend that. What I had to say to us, baby, you have a daddy who loves you. And this isn't going to make any sense to you, but here's what I need you to know. You can trust me. Listen to me. The mind of God is like the mind of an adult trying to talk to a three-year-old. You don't have the mind to comprehend this. Matter of fact, whenever Habakkuk was talking to God and and all this stuff is happening with the nation of Israel, if you didn't know this, in 586 BC, the Babylonians come and they conquer the southern kingdom of Israel and they disperse all the Israelis all over the world. Things are awful. They don't know what's happening. By the way, Acts chapter two is the diaspora of all these people who come back to Jerusalem and they start the greatest church planting movement ever. It didn't start in Acts chapter two. It started in 586 BC, whenever the nation of Israel was spread throughout all the world so that God could bring them back and send them back out. So the the prophet Habakkuk comes to God and he says, what are you doing? God says, if I even began to tell you, it wouldn't make any sense. So just trust me. Same thing's true today. Guys, sometimes God's ways are not your ways and you don't have the ability to comprehend it, so just trust him. If the resurrection is true, that's the proof that he knows exactly what he's doing. Number four, he is the object of our faith. Verse 16, and by his name, in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and by faith in, that comes through Jesus, he has given this man the perfect health. You know, did, I, did you know this, that faith doesn't matter? You're like, what? Imagine this. Imagine that I told you to go to One World Trade Center and jump off the top and, and have faith that you're gonna fly. Good luck, right? Faith doesn't matter. The object of your faith matters. See, it's what you put your faith in that matters. I don't care how much faith you have. If you don't have faith in the right thing, it's not gonna matter. The same thing is true in life. His name is Jesus. That's what saves you. It's faith in his name. Like I tell our church all the time, when I got married to my wife, it didn't really matter what some government authority said. The ring on my finger doesn't make us marry. Nothing makes us marry besides our union with one another in God. And when we got married, she received my name. Poor girl, right? So she received my name. What does that mean? If we walked out of that room and she lived as if she wasn't my wife anymore, she would be making a mockery or taking my name in vain. Did you know that? Did you know taking the Lord's name in vain is not about saying some cuss word? It's about receiving his name and then acting as if you don't belong to him. That's what the commandment means to don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't call yourself a Christian and act like you're not. You have faith in his name, he's the object of your faith. It's his name, it's by faith in his name and what he did, receiving it that you are united to him and you're a part of the family of God. Peter is saying that if you want to know what it's about, it's all about him. If you want your identity to be rooted and have something speak into your life, understand that it is in his name and by his name that changes everything. Number five, I know I'm running short on time, so I'm going to go quickly as if I don't already speak quickly. He is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Verse 17, it tells you that all the prophets talked about him. Did you know that there are over 300 direct prophecies in the Old Testament alone that Jesus fulfilled? When the prophets spoke, they spoke about Jesus. It's all about him. The entire thing is about Jesus. That's why, by the way, the Old Testament matters because if you don't know the Old Testament, you can't know Jesus. It's all about him. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the greater Moses. He's the fulfillment of the covenants. He's the promised son of David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the one who will crush the serpent's head in Genesis chapter three. It's all about Jesus. Number six, he is the Christ If you didn't know this, Christ is not his last name. It's not like he's the son of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, right? Christos, it's a title that means Messiah or anointed one. He's the promised one. He's the one that the entire thing is about. Jesus is the one. Verse 18, here's what you need to notice. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. How did he become the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Christos? He became it by becoming the suffering servant. See, it was by his humiliation. The nation of Israel was waiting for a Messiah that would alleviate their pain from the Roman occupation and become their king. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something far greater than be the king of Israel. I'm going to be the king of the world. So for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been shaping the world through his name you you might think that Christianity is on the downslope because it is in America, but did you know that in South and Central America, in Africa, and in China, it is growing at a rapid pace? And I love this. By the year 2050, the largest city in the world is going to be Lagos, Nigeria. The largest population that's actually growing in the world is in Sub-Saharan Africa, not in the West, By the way, if you didn't know this, Christianity is exploding in Africa, which means that God is playing chess while the rest of the world is playing checkers. It is by his name and in his name. Verse seven, our number seven, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He says this, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for me a prophet like me from your brothers. See, Moses, Moses was the great prophet of the book of Exodus that took his people out of slavery and into the promised land. That's what the entire Bible is about. Jesus is trying to take his people out of exile into this thing called the promised land, which is going to be on earth. Remember this, Revelation chapter 21, that heaven is going to come down to earth. You're going to live here in a resurrected body because Jesus is going to take his people out. By the way, that's why the Bible, I love this, Jeremiah 29 is why we name our church City Church. Uh, Whenever the nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon, God told the nation of Israel, hey, I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay there. I want you to build houses there and I want you to seek the shalom of the city that I sent you to. Why? Because you are a resident alien in this place called earth and you're building his kingdom. And the greater Moses is going to come and restore and redeem this place called earth for you to live in forever and ever and ever. Number eight, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise you are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Who is that son that, Jesus, uh, that, son that Abraham was talking about? He's not talking about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or David. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus. If you actually trace Jesus' lineage back, it goes all the way back to this promise where a 100-year-old man looked up at the stars of the sky and God said, hey, it's gonna be more numerous, your family, than anything that you could ever imagine. So you trace from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph all the way to David, then to Solomon, and all the way to Jesus, and it's that same line. The promise that God made thousands of years ago was actually that his son would come and he would make a way for salvation for all people. Y'all, what's the voice that you hear in your head? Is it you're not good enough? Because I know the voice that God says is this. You are worthy enough to die for. You are worthy enough that this story that started thousands of years ago was such an extravagant story that God himself would take off his throne in heaven, come down to earth, Stand in your place to give you new life. Romans 5 eight says that even while you were yet sinners, before you did anything good or bad, Christ died for you to give you new life. See, the voices that you hear determine who you are. Let me just ask you, are you hearing from the voice of God? When you look in the mirror and you look at yourself, do you see a failure or do you see a beloved child of the King? who would adopt you into his family and give you new life. That's what Peter wanted you to know. Don't cling to me. Don't listen to those voices. Hear from God himself. He loved you so much that he would die for you and adopt you into his family, and one day he's going to reconcile all things. I love that. John's vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And God says, I will come and I will be their God and they will be my people and we will live forever and I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning nor crying anymore for the former things that passed away. One day, one day he's gonna make all the sad things become untrue and you will dwell with him for eternity if you listen to the correct voices. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Peter's reminder. God, thank you that you have given us new life. I pray that you would bless these people, Crossroads Church, and that they would, hear, they would hear the truth of who you've called them to be and created them to be. And I pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear that, Lord, you are good and kind, and Jesus, it's all about you. We love you. Pray all this in your name. Amen.